Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Tennis.com podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Nina Pantic. And I'm Irina Falcone. Our guest today is reporter and writer Pete Bodo. He has been working in the game for over four decades as a reporter, journalist, and author of multiple books, including a memoir about Pete Sampras in 2008 and a book about Roger Federer in 2012. He talks to us about the past, present, and future of journalism and tennis. Pete was a big part of Tennis Magazine and now works for ESPN. He has a lot of stories to share from his time on tour and working with different players, including a couple gems about Tracy Austin, Yvonne Gulagong, and a bunch more. Let's hear from Pete Bodo. Okay, Pete Bodo, welcome to the Tennis.com podcast. Thank you for joining us. Pleasure to be here. So let's get started with a little bit of background about you. I know you as a very, very well-known writer, someone who's been in the game for a long time. Why tennis? Well, it's interesting. Uh, you know, when I got out of college in what, uh, Stone Age, basically, you know, like 70, uh, 71, uh, 72, uh, the, you know, the game was basically exploding. That's when, you know, everyone was suddenly interested in tennis. It was a heart of the tennis boom and, and people were, yeah, gee, these Australian guys, you know, are so cool. And, you know, they're such macho guys. And then the, the Americans were lucky enough to have a couple of players come along. You know, we had Stan Smith, Wimbledon champion stuff. So the game was really, really growing. I was actually working for a small newspaper in New Jersey, and I, uh, my first job basically, and I covered the U.S. Open because it was so close. I met a lot of people during the Open, including Bud Collins and a man named Shep Campbell, who were both, you know, just really delightful, you know, because they saw I was, you know, I was young, I was interested in tennis, and they were kind of tennis evangelists. And uh, you know, Shep was the editor uh, editor in chief of Tennis Magazine for a long, long time, and he sort of. You know, asked to see some clips after the tournament, and I sent him some clips, and he offered me, you know, a, a feature story to write, and I really liked it, and one thing led to another, and I, you know, just sort of fell into it, and the opportunity was there. What is writing, or what was writing like back then? Because now I feel like writing is so manufactured and so overlooked, and back then it was so important. Well, yeah, it was because, you know, it's, and it was also, frankly, a lot easier for, for we writers. I mean, you know, what you had was, you know, if you if you're interested in tennis, you had you know basically two options. Number one was to read the newspapers and hope that whatever newspaper you read would carry something more than a little bullet thing in the on the agate page. Uh, you probably don't even know what agate page means in its day and age, but <laughs> but uh, it's the, the page where all the stats are, like the box scores from baseball and all that. So you you think if you're lucky, if you got something on the agate page about what was happening in Italy at the Italian Open, the only other way to get your information was through a tennis magazine. And at that time, there were three of them, World Tennis, Tennis Magazine, USTA Magazine. So there were a number of sources you could go to, but you had to subscribe to them. But it'd be funny, you'd get your September issue of World Tennis Magazine, and it would have the results from the Italian Open, you know, so, but you know, you took what you could get. And so writing at that time was was really kind of a magazine game, unless you worked for a newspaper and were lucky enough to have a reasonable amount of tennis coverage, like the New York Times, you know, they've always been pretty good about covering tennis. So, you know, basically magazines, of course, are very different now. There were two 
there were two aspects to the magazine world then. One of them was the servicing the players, and that's where the te- that's where the tennis magazines did really well financially because they were able to you know equipment reviews, instruction, uh, resorts, all that stuff. That was a big deal. But you know they kind of kept that all up and made it interesting <laughs> by having articles, you know, feature articles, columns, that kind of a thing. And we would recently look. There's a time when I would go to Wimbledon for two weeks. I would essentially be working on one major story and maybe one minor one. And that was it. Wow. I can't even imagine. That sounds like the absolute golden era of magazines being like everything. I mean, can you literally imagine? And that would mean that newspapers and magazines and writers like Pete were in charge of your entire image as a player, right? I, I honestly, I can't believe that. Um, to go along with that, you get out of college. Did you know that you wanted to get into tennis? Like, was that ever something that kind of piqued your interest? Had you played it before? Like, did you like writing about it when you started? Yes, I had played it recreationally and taught it recreationally at a park. It was a great summer job teaching teaching little kids and older people for to play tennis and stuff. So I was always in the mix. I was never like like you guys, a, a top junior player or anything. But, you know, I played in college and, and you know, sort of a nice low-key kind of career there. And uh, really, I was more interested in the writing than in the tennis, which is one thing I think that in the long term really helped me. Uh, and I basically, you know, uh, I, I just wanted to write. I mean, I, I, when I started at the newspaper, I was in a police beat, and it, and it put me in a municipal beat, and I was covering, you know, city sewage commission meetings, and I was writing about it, you know, describing a guy having a red face and being, you know, aggressively, you know, uh, making implications about the thing. And they say, listen, you better go, you better go to sports. There are too many adjectives. There's too much kind of opinion kind of stuff. So they put me in sports, and then... With the um, because of my knowledge and interest in tennis, when the game started to boom, I said, "Hey, you know, I'd love to write about this. These guys are really interesting. You know, Rod Laver's got an interesting personality. In fact, my first on the road tournament was a Philadelphia U.S. Pro indoor, where it was Laver Rosewall in the final, and uh, and I found my sweet spot with that basically because you know, as you know so well, tennis is a game of personality. It's a game of mental struggles and stuff, and that's fascinating to write about. That's incredible. Like that's your first. Like those are absolute icons and now everyone's so panicked about Federer and Nadal reaching the end of your their careers but you've seen all these eras shift and change and all these great players retire and tennis kept going absolutely we survived yeah they come and go and it's going to happen again there's going to be the new the new best thing ever the new greatest it's even starting a little bit with Medvedev if you can keep it up you're going to have that kind of and look at the girls I mean look at the women Anisimova you know you've got Sofia Kennan who I think is terrific and you've got a whole bunch of players now who are kind of really firing things up so you don't get worried about the state of tennis just because a couple big players are reaching the end of their career because you've seen it yes and I've seen it I've seen how cyclical it is uh, and there is a legitimate concern in terms of the commerce. I mean, Federer, you know, you can go out right now on Broadway and sell tickets to Federer matches. You know, you'll sell out in five minutes. You go out there and try and sell a ticket to even a Medvedev match and you're going to have trouble. So that's one thing to be, you know, the commercial aspect of it. You have to say, well, we're, you know, we, yeah, make hay while the sun shines because these guys, there's, there's unlikely to be another generation like this. But then there was the same kind of hype about Sampras and Agassi. And they were talking about, oh, Pete Sampras and Andre Agassi. Oh, with those old Australian guys, one-handed backhands, wooden rackets, that was nothing. So, you know, th- things times change and, 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 and people always adapt and, you know, they sort of end up, you know, elevating and deifying whatever's in front of them as long as it's reasonable. Do you have a favorite player that you love to watch or that you love to write about that you've kind of, 
you know, whether or not you've established a relationship, like, do you have anyone that really just inspires you and you love to see on TV? Maybe past or present, whatever. You know, I've watched a lot of tennis matches. And I, in my opinion, tennis is not a particularly one of the weaknesses of tennis is that it's not a telegenetic sport. You know, I mean, I think I think looking at a tennis match, they've got a it takes a lot of work to make a tennis match look interesting because, you know, you don't have the bright sunshine like in football, all the guys, you know, sideline shots, this and that. You do have the coaches boxes, of course. So I think that's always a little, that's difficult. And, you know, you see, you know, when you've seen a lot of tennis matches and, you know, after a while they kind of sort of run together. I mean, I, I do like watching the people I really like to watch best. You know, I'll tune in for like the more interesting, bigger uh matchups and the things I like to watch best really I like the disruptors the guys whose games are and women uh, whose games are you know a little bit different you know uh, you know I, I think you've traditionally had more of those among the men I think that's a little bit of a new frontier for the women I think they'll get there but you've you know so I like the guys like a Medvedev or you know Fabio Fanini uh, Andy Murray he's another disruptor although it'll drive you nuts because he's always undermining himself but so those are the people I, I, I kind of really like to watch in, in terms of the aesthetics of the game and of course Federer you know what's not you know what, what's not to like it's it's almost like he's too perfect you know you watch the absolute elegant game and right, that's the way the game should be played and very few can play it that way move on he's something special by I honestly he's my favorite player whether you were asking or not I think that you should know he's my favorite player because everyone that I talk to they've always asked me that and it's not even about the court anymore for me like what he does on the court it's this aura and this like just thing that he exudes when he walks by and it's just the coolest thing ever like I was mid hardcore conversation after a tough loss and both me and my coach at one point we looked up because Federer was walking by and then he walked past and then we went back to our conversation. Like we had to stop what we were doing <laughs> okay, just because it. of, yeah, like you just feel him from like the other side of the room. Like when we were in the Australian Open or US Open dining room, like you you know when he's in the room, you know when he's eating there and it's it's pretty freaking cool. Yeah, that's star quality. How, how in any way, if I can turn the tables here a little, how in any way has he influenced you and shaped your approach to your career? Um, I think it's a little different just because he's – He's a bit older than me, and he's had a heck of a lot of more success than me. It's just seeing the way he plays, kind of just how... Uh, I remember Tom Gullickson described him as a duck in the water, like the way he moves. He's mm -hmm. like, he stays so still above the surface, you know, but his feet are constantly going, just like a duck in water. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just seeing him play, just seeing his professionalism, just seeing how... How much he does off court. Uh, I, I think that anyone that watches him play should, you know, also focus on the stuff that he's doing off court because I'm sure that that also translates into his game as well. Well, yeah, I should add that that basically, if you're talking about who I admire as you know as an all-around package, as you know, sort of player slash person, Federer's right at the top of the list. It's I would love to take him around to any number of players who I can name, and I'm more than happy to name and and. Have them sit down and watch a Federer press conference when he talks to people and watch how he handles somebody who asks like a really stupid question or somebody who asks something that's, you know, borderline insulting to him or something. He gets, he skates through, the, I mean, he's got this talent, of course, for skating right across the top of life in every sense, including his career, which is really unusual for a professional athlete. But, 
you know, just the way he handles them, you know, it's, and you want to tell these people, look, you bring all these problems on yourself. You hate the press. They hate you. You know, you're, you're indifferent. You don't want to do this. I said, look at this guy. He's the greatest player in the world. He will sit down. He will look, look the lowliest of, of people, you know, in, in quotes, you know, in the eye, answer his question and move on. And, and it's no big deal. It's no sweat. He's, he's such, a, I, I hate to use the word professional because that sounds a little like it's sort of studied and almost fake and it's not the real him, but he's the ultimate professional that way. The press room is an interesting place to be. But before, you could have probably gotten a Roger Federer, whoever's number one in the world, you could have gotten a one-on-one interview with them. And now to get an interview with Roger Federer one-on-one, is it's not going to happen. I mean, right. rarely, unless maybe your Swiss press at a Swiss tournament is rare. Uh, how has the access changed? I feel like it's going to be so frustrating because uh, they don't care. Whew, don't get me started. It's 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 unbelievable. I mean, in in, in a way, in a way, it's easier because you don't have to stress about getting these people lined up. And you know, I mean, I've spent a lot of time sitting on the edge of a bed in a hotel room, like at eleven o'clock on a bright sunny day, waiting for the phone to ring because somebody I'm writing about is practicing and they're supposed to call me after practice. And and then sometimes they never do. You know, that kind of thing for, for an interview. But uh, no, I mean, basically my job for the longest of time when I was a senior writer at Tennis Magazine was to go and uh, spend three days around Chris Everett and, and do a profile. And of course, you had to get permission for that. But you got permission in those days because, you know, either you were, either they knew you, you, you built relationships with these people. Plus, you know, Tennis Magazine was the standard, you know, granted they love Sports Illustrated. That always, you know, was right up there, but they didn't always get Sports Illustrated. So in terms of managing your media stuff, they would very, very easily, you know, they could, they could accommodate you. And so, you know, you'd go out to dinner with them. I remember, you know, Jeannie Austin taking me into the peak of Tracy's prodigy, right? And I imagine this with Coco Goff. To peak of Tracy's prodigy, the mother, Jeannie Austin, invites me to the house in Rolling Hills for dinner. I'm out, you know, I flew out there to the interview her, do all this stuff. She invites me to the house for dinner. We have dinner. She takes me to Tracy's room. <laughs> she showed me Tracy's stuff and her little, little inspirational messages on the wall and things like that. And, you know, I was totally open. Big interview with her, watch Tracy practice. So then I would go to the practices, watch the player practice with the coach, interact with both of them. You know, with it, you know, you have to know how to play your cards, right? You can't be shouting questions or, you know, you, you watch, you chat. And generally, you, you know, you sort of, you know, it's like friend for the week kind of a thing. And then, then you write the story and hope that it doesn't burn a bridge for you. <laughs> can't even imagine that kind of like that kind of approach to journalism is so gone. They have their own, they have their cell phones and they're making their own Instagram live videos and that's it. They don't need anyone to be there anymore. That's so sad to me. I hear you. I probably sound like a real troglodyte, but you know, I think social media has been a horrible thing in tennis in many ways. You know, it uh, gives people a false sense of their importance and, you know, well, anyway, that's, that's an interesting discussion to have maybe in another context. It's got pros and it's cons for sure. Um, I, I know a lot of people that don't like it but you know other people really thrive with it and it's a money maker that's definitely unavoidable yeah that's for sure but you know that's going to change too i think uh you know maybe not the instagrams and but this is going a little field but i mean with all the stuff going on in the political world and, and all that i mean i think the whole controversy about whether they should become platforms where anybody can say whatever the hell they want i think that's that's probably going to change if if they don't change if these if the outfits don't change the companies like facebook then they're going to be made to be changed, I think, by, by government. 
Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Hey guys, Irina here. We're talking with Pete Bodo today, legendary journalist. We're talking all things tennis, social media, and the king of tennis, Roger Federer. Stay tuned. It's amazing what you can find on the internet, though, because like I was doing some research review, and I'm like, I can find people hating on you on Twitter. I'm like, why would you bother hating on a writer on Twitter? Like, it doesn't make any sense. Like, you see, like Irina also gets a lot of hate and stuff. I don't understand. Like, what's? Do you ever look at that kind of stuff? Do you ever see that stuff? Does it ever bug you if someone's like, oh my god, I hate the story? Like, no. Well, yeah, you know, I do. I don't so much look for my stories. I look for your stories and see people hating on you and, and other and other players and journalists. But no, look, Twitter's a cesspool, basically, it really is. I mean, and it's a place where people go to unload their their their, their most hostile, aggressive, repressed feelings and and or or the virtue signal, which is the one that drives me nuts. Is people, you know, whenever there's a tragedy or something important happens and people, you know, write, oh, our hearts go out to you and, and you know, or, or even on a political front where they take sides and really pretend to be, you know, you know, really virtuous and, you know, wonderful. And I'm a little like, you know what, it's not costing you anything. It's really a cheap way. And, and, and I think that expression virtue signaling, which has just come into vogue at some level, is a very accurate description. You're telling the world what a virtuous, wonderful person you are. And I don't buy that. But that's another thing in, in terms of how tennis has changed. All these players, like we talked about Federer as if he was a god just then. Like we were putting him up as this kind of star, unreachable icon. And I feel like media has kind of created these stars. Like we're kind of pushing Coco Mania. But then they have the access to make their own image and promote their social media and be these righteous people. And we don't actually know them. But you used to spend three days with Tracy Austin. Like you probably felt like you kind of got a sense of her. But now we don't have that. Even though we're all access, we see everything. We don't know anything. No, at some level, we've been co-opted very brilliantly. And uh, when they started to do the mass interviews, you know, the, the post-matches, the post-match interview is essentially a wonderful, it's amazing how few players recognize this. It's a wonderful self-promotional public relations exercise. Irina, you've probably seen this a thousand times too. You get guys, you get people, you know, guy chokes like crazy. You ask him, gee, you know, what happened in the third set? <laughs> yeah, you were 40 love, 5-4, and, and you blow the match. Say, well, you know, it, it's really tough to, you know, instead of saying, yeah, I choked, they'll come up with it, some kind of a rationalization that kind of makes it look better. And they could really, you know, it's, they don't realize what a powerful tool they have in these obligatory interviews because they can, you can only print in quotes what they say. And so they can say anything they want. And in a way, it's almost refreshing that you have so many people who are oblivious to their media obligations because it shows that at least you're not being super manipulated. But, you know, back in the day, you didn't have this. I mean, I remember the U.S. Open when uh, Nastasi had that Pullman match with that crazy match where Pullman was, you know, struggling on a court, dying. Nastasi was calling him names. When he left the court, people were punching each other. You know, we walked back to the locker room, you know, like three or four of us, and sat down on a bench at the Westside Tennis Club in the men's locker room with Nastasi as he's changing and he's going on. And Pullman came over and tried to reach over and get him. And we're like looking around saying, you know, what's going on here? But that's that's how the access was and that's how open it was. I mean, imagine going to the locker room. Like, what? That's pretty crazy. So athletes, tennis athletes, um, they get trained by their social media, you know, person or their agent. Hey, this is how you're supposed to answer questions. This is what you're supposed to post, blah, blah, blah. Do you like it when people are just completely 
completely like you know raw and honest and you know whether they curse on in the in the press room like do you like it like that or would you rather it be a little bit more refined absolutely i don't mind you know i mean you know, i i draw the line at you know explicit vulgarity or people who you know who go after people like you know a reporter might ask a dumb question it's, you know oddly enough nina as nina knows sometimes the dumb que- the really dumb question that makes everyone roll their eyes is great because it actually triggers the player you know and they go in you may have had that experience yourself i mean it's you know but for a reporter that's kind of gold no i i like the authenticity and i i i hate the way they're trained that they i hate the way they're told to be exactly the way I just described, saying, hey, listen, you know, you go in there and you just, you know, be polite and tell them, you know, how hard you're working and, you know, don't criticize any other player. That's another big one, criticizing other players, you know, those kinds of things. I, I think media training is, you know, it's Manchurian candidate territory and I, I, don't, I don't go for it. It makes things so boring sometimes when players just give automated responses. They have three or four things they just say on repeat and you're just frustrated because you can't get anything any kind of color, but you're not trying to, I mean, I feel like I'm never trying to trip them up or make them look stupid or make any kind of controversy. I just want like something interesting to talk about. And I know that they have that and I'm trying to pull it out and it's just, it's just getting nowhere. It's like a weird clash of people just not getting on. I'm not sure they always have that. You had a guy like a Stefan Edberg who, you know, wonderful guy, great game, obviously. I, you, you could spend the next three weeks trying to get him to say something interesting and you probably won't. But that's Stefan. He's a good guy anyway. I mean, I guess my only rebuttal to that is that there have been moments, I'm sure you guys have noticed, when reporters and journalists will misconstrue something or make a look, make a player look bad. And I'm sure that that's probably why they're a little more um, reserved with what they say. I'm sure you've seen that. Moments? You kidding me? <laughs> There's weeks and months when it, I, a good story. I kind of have sort of a favorite little anecdote about that. You know, Doug Doug Robson who's still around occasionally, was writing for USA Today. And he, he called Andy Roddick a one-slam wonder. This was fairly late in Andy's career. Now, oh, no. yes, it's true that Andy won just one grand slam. But obviously, we know that he was in there fight. He was, you know, semis and final, four Wimbledon finals, Davis Cup. And and Andy got really mad at him. And he, uh, and, you know, that's, see, that's one thing I like, too. You know, Doug wrote this about Andy, and, and Andy responded by not really getting in his face in an overly aggressive way, but he got mad. He said, look, you offended me. That really hurt my feeling, you know? And, and, and I think that kind of, that's the kind of interplay you'd love to be able to have, you know, with the players. Cause then, you know, they're, they're kind of mindful of what they're saying and, and of their image and stuff. And, but they're also, you know, they're being honest. They're not gilding the lily or, or not, you know, like some, there are some players who would never like talk to Doug again. And their response to that, cause they're so, they're so damn proud. Um, especially the top players, the pride factor is unbelievable. And some of these people have some interesting stories about that. Like? Well, I had a friend, this goes back to my ethnic, ethnicity, uh, a Hungarian friend. And so because I speak the language, my parents were immigrants. I, I befriended Balaz Tarotzi, who was at one point a top 10 player. He'd won a couple titles. And uh, I, I actually ended up visiting him at his home in Budapest, you know, late, late in his career and stuff. And he was talking about coaching and what he might do. And he... Uh, you know, he, you know, you know, I asked him, you know, do you, you know, what's, what do you think about Becker? Because he separated with Bresnik, and I knew Becker very well by that time. And uh, Boris had told me that he's looking for a new coach, and you know, it was unofficial. It was not, you know, it was just, you know, man to man kind of thing. And so uh, I said to Boris, "Hey, how would you, how, you know, he's and who's got a really good tennis mind, a very, very smart, well educated, 
you know, a well-mannered guy, uh, ideal for a coach. And, you know, I said, how would you feel about coaching Bards? He said, well, you know, I don't know. You know, he's kind of a little volatile, et cetera. But, you know, I, I'd certainly be interested in hearing what he had to say. <laughs> I went back to Boris and I said, hey, you know, you should talk to Balash Tyrus. He's a friend of mine. And I mentioned that you're looking for a coach and he's, he might be open to it. And I think he's a very smart guy, you know. Boris said, no, no, I'd, I'd never take him. I, I'm like, you know, I'm like, well, well, why? And he said, he said, I read something sometime, you know, uh, like three years ago or four years ago about the fact that he said my forehand wasn't as strong as it as it should be or something. It was, it was something along those lines. And I'm like, wait a minute. He said something when you were like tw- 18 years old. You're not, you know, you're now, you know, 23, 24. You've won all these things. He said something that questioned one of your strokes four years ago. And therefore, he's like written out of history. Yep. <laughs> It's un- unbelievable how sensitive people can be. I feel like tennis players, especially, no offense, Arena, get a little bit wrapped up in their own little bubbles and it's all about them. A little bit, is it narcissistic when you're obsessed with yourself? That kind of feeling. So whenever someone offends them or whenever something doesn't go their way, they get very, very more upset than like maybe someone normal wouldn't. Like some people can move on. It's like he, uh, I don't know. I already know what do you think. Am I out of line? So this is what, this is my rebuttal against that. And people are going to probably think, um, controversial with what I'm saying. At the end of the day, it is about us. We're one. We're 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 the talent. We're the one that's making the money. We're the prize money player. We should be wrapped up in our bubble because that will consistently bring us wins. That will bring us success. That will bring us fans. That's like what we want, is it not? No, I think you make a good point. I think you're right. It's just hard sometimes just to. To see through that and be like, okay, well, I'm trying to to write something or I'm trying to interview you or I'm trying to work with you, but then they're being divas and difficult and rejecting interviews. And it's like, all right, well, get over yourself. No, I think you're 100% right. In fact, you guys should be wrapped up in your bubbles and stuff, but you know, but not to the point maybe where you lose sight or, or where you do things that are demonstrably, you know, bad decisions, you know, which, which can happen. And it's certainly not us to arbitrate what that is necessarily, although in some, to some degree it is, you know, we're, we're out there. I mean, I think the important thing is that the relationship between journalists and players, and this has changed a lot too, because back in it, you know, back when I would do these long profiles and spend four or five days with people, I did it with Boris, I did it with everybody. Uh, and, uh, you know, you actually did develop a relationship with these people. And I always saw my job. One of the reasons that happened was I was seen as a person who wasn't critical of players. And I think this goes to Irina's point where I was saying, you know, my attitude was that I'm a conduit to the public, uh, their conduit to the public. Show me the face. You, you, not so much that you want the public to see for PR reasons, but, you know, show me your real face that we can show you to the public and they can say, hey, wow, this guy's, you know, cool. He's got some other interests. He's got this. He's got that. So, so that really, you know, you, you know, kind of worked out pretty well. But I, I think when you run into trouble really is, especially now, when there's less and less contact and less and less human interaction with people, you know, you get, you know, and, and you do get people saying vicious things about players or savage things. And, are, you know, a lot of people can be, can be jerks and, 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 and oppressed. There's no question about that. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. 
Hi everyone, we're here with Pete Bodo, world-renowned journalist and author of multiple books talking about the past, present, and future of journalism and tennis. Keep listening. There's so many pros and cons to social media, but in overall, if you're looking at it from your career over the past few years or past decades, it's a negative thing. Well, well, yeah. Also, I mean, I think the way it's shaped, you know, it, it, it has some some excellent dimensions. It's made information more available to people. It's allowed people to share things like stories or pictures or whatever and stuff. So, you know, in many ways, there, there are, you know, upsides to it, of course. But, you know, and I'm not one of these guys who says, gee, you know, I, I wish it was the old days. You know, I wish I could still, you know, work, you know, for a week on a story, etc. You know, that's that's not me. I mean, I've had to shift what I do. I, I think what's a little bit what's a little bit sad now really is that there's pressure to perform to, to produce a lot. There's a pressure to produce you know, almost on a, on a 24-hour cycle if you fall into it, certainly during the majors. And there's less and less engagement and in human interaction between the players. The, one of the reasons I liked covering the sport from the start was because there was it was it was relationally based. I mean, tennis is still based on relations in terms of, you know, who are the promoters, who are the agents, who are the coaches. It's a very relationship-driven sport. And I think, you know, that part has changed now. And, and you know, the media is in some ways the enemy and it's in some ways a friend, but you should never, you, you know, you can never get to a player. I don't think it's a mistake for a player ever to assume, you know, too much that the media is going to be on their side because the media is always going to have this, you know, well, you know, I also want to be either truthful or objective or whatever, however you want to put it. How do you feel about the players that don't use it at all and just have someone do it for them? Like how, because you have to think those players that are in the top 10 um, that aren't looking at their phones all the time and probably just don't have time to be, you know, posting every little thing. Like, how much do you actually think we're getting from the top players and the high profile players that, you know, have people working for them to make sure that their tweets and their posts are going out at this specific time to reach this specific number of people? Yeah, I think you're getting very little. Frankly, I think you're getting, you know, just something you're getting, a, you know, you're getting a peek at a celebrity, you know, it's another, it's, it's like watching somebody go by in a limo, you know, you just get that little, little surge. I mean, I'm not saying to do anything untruthful, but you also, you know, you realize how, how, how rarely there are, you know, uh, you know, people posting to, to me, rarely do the top players post like a great insight. It's always like, well done, Novak, you know, Rafa, you know, heart, heart, airplane, you know, whatever, you know. So, I mean, you know, who, who cares? You know, I mean, that, you know, so to me, that's not that uh, that's not that important a thing. Do you use it a lot, Irina? I follow you, I think, but. <laughs> um, no, I don't. I actually rarely post. It was funny because there was I went to this tournament in California a few weeks ago in Templeton. And someone wrote an article about it. I think Nina knows her. And one of the comments she made was like, oh, I saw Irina Falcone. She's in the draw of this tournament. Just goes to show that you can't really know what's happening just from their social media because I had not posted anything on my social media that I was coming back. So I guess in a way, you know, there still should be a little bit of surprise left in people. Well, yeah. <laughs> That's the one thing about social media. It's like, all right, you already know it's you know what's coming. You 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 constantly get all this information, but it is kind of nice to see. Oh my gosh, I didn't know this was going on. I didn't know they were there. So sometimes it's cool. 
Yeah, no, I'm with you 100%. I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's it's one of those things. You know, I always wonder, you know, you see people walking down the street with their phones and stuff. And I, and I, and I think to myself, okay, do you really need to know what so-and-so said at 2 o'clock this afternoon when you can, you know, see it on the evening news? I mean, you know, it's, it's you know, why, why do you need to know this exactly when it happened? I mean, how does that Because of the instant the gratification millennial behavior that everyone has to be online in the know all the time and posting all the time. And then thus it translates to us having to make more content all the time 24-7. But I feel almost at some point that, I don't know what you think on this, if Will there even be any point for having reporters in a press room at some point? Are they just going to do like videotapes of players ask, an, answering the most mundane four questions, broadcast it to the world, and then be like, all right, you don't even have to be here anymore? We're moving that way. And uh, unfortunately, in, in my view, a lot of my colleagues, especially the British press, are very adamant about the rights of newspapers and what newspapers ought to be. You know, uh, that, you know, transcripts should be withheld and because newspapers, so newspapers can publish original quotes. The argument is that my editors won't send me if they know that, you know, anybody can go on the Internet and find what find out what Federer said after the match. So there's a 24 hour embargo on, on transcripts and things like that. And, and I think it's I mean, I think it's kind of a mistake. I, I think there's there's no holding that back. And look, let's face it, we're we are, you know, uh, you know, I think we have sometimes an overinflated sense of our own importance. You know, you think, well, look, I'm your conduit to the public or I'm, you know, I'm, you know, if, if it weren't for me, you wouldn't be in newspaper. Well, it's not really true. They'd be in a newspaper anyway. People would sell tickets. I think, uh, you know, we're not in a good bargaining position. You know, they're, you know, the, the players are making money for a tournament and the tournament's making money for a player, but the press is not making money. For the players, and you know, you, people argue that they are because of the publicity and everything else. But you know what? Anybody could do that publicity. And frankly, I don't think there's a large enough number of people who are really interested in tennis in an in-depth, creative, inventive, really nice way. You know, to, so that you know something like those four quotes that are sent out, the quick video clip of the press conference. That's what most people want. And so, you know, we're, we're in a tough position. We're beggars, basically. We're, we're hoping these people will cooperate. Have you ever considered or thought about, I'm sure you have, uh, as things have been changing, to get into maybe broadcasting, commentating, changing your away from just writing? It's hard because you've written like 10 books. Writing is your entire passion. Well, that's my thing. But I mean, I had, it was, it was funny. I was actually having dinner, I feel like a name dropper, with Yvonne Gulagong and her agent Bud Stan, or Yvonne's husband, Roger Cawley, at 21 Club in Manhattan. You know, And at that one time, 21 was really like way up there. And it still is in a way, in a very conservative, quiet way. And I, so this could be a little bit blue. But I went to, I went to the men's room with Bud. Bud and I both went to the men's room. We're, we're standing together doing what men do in the men's room. And uh, and Bud asked me if I'd ever gone into bro- if, if if I wanted to go if I wanted to go into broadcasting. He was a big agent in IMG, one of the top guys. And and I said, I said, yeah, no, not really. You know, I, I'm a writer. You know, I'm, I'm sort of I work on some fiction. I'd really like to you know continue as a writer. And he said, hey, go to work for TV. You know, you do ten or fifteen years of TV commentary and analysis. I can get you a lot of money. You retire, you retire early, or you get the freedom, and you can you can write the great American novel when you're done. And immediately, I felt like it was the devil talking to me. <laughs> And immediately I saw myself like sitting on a bar stool at the age of 40, you know, in, in a, in, with Gucci loafers and a nice suit and telling the bartender, you know, I could have written a great American novel, but, you know, I decided to go into TV. So I sort of, I, I never, I never did that. I always wanted to be a writer. I'm the idiot, you know. I felt a similar way when I went to journalism school in Missouri and I pretty much focused on newspaper print journalism. And I 
come down. It's been like five years. And I'm like, what, what was I thinking? Like everyone wants to be on camera. If you're not on camera, you're irrelevant. If you're not doing like, even if it's social media interviews on camera, any kind of element of broadcast journalism. And I look back and I'm like, cool. I spent two years making newspapers. Like, what was I thinking? But I loved it. Like it's what I wanted to do was magazines and print journalism. And now it's like, I spend 95% of the time not doing that. No, I know. It's, it's true. At least Irena chose a profession that for women is like way, way, way at the top of the uh, scale. Imagine she could have wanted to be a f- professional field hockey player. <laughs> She's There's a smart one. I chose well. Yeah. <laughs> you did. My cards were handed out just right. Just a few thoughts on you've seen a lot of prodigies come through. You mentioned Tracy Austin. Uh, name dropping is great. We love name dropping. Do you see, and Serena Williams obviously would have been one of the projects, Jennifer Capriotti. I mean, all these big names have come through as young, at a young age, and it kind of stopped for a bit. But now we have Coco Goff, 15 years old. I was a bit worried about the Wimbledon run felt unexpected. And I was like, oh, we shouldn't really overhype this kid. She's 15. But then she kept following it up, won the title in Linz. I just don't. She seems like the real deal. Can you tell? Yeah, no. Uh, no, she seems like it. I'm 100% with you. But you don't. But. Nothing's guaranteed. And, you know, who knows where she's at age 18. You know, I mean, this is, you know, it hasn't happened at her level. Uh, not to the top of my head, I can't recall someone else who made such a big splash at such a young age and then, I don't know, flamed out. But, you know, there's any number of ways that things could go terribly wrong for her. I mean, you know, you, you just don't know. I mean, terribly is probably too strong a word. But, you know, and, and you know, there have been others, too. I mean, yeah, I know I'm trying to think of young men, but, you know, uh, no, nobody quite li- like that. So, you know, all the signs are positive, but boy, don't take it. Don't ever take anything for granted. Ain't that the truth? Well, I think we covered a lot, Pete. That was really good. Well, thank you for your time. It's been amazing chatting with you today. Absolute pleasure. From the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, this has been the Tennis.com podcast. Be sure to subscribe to stay caught up. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and every major listening app, as well as tennis.com slash podcasts. We're your hosts, Nina Pantic and Irina Falcone. We'd like to thank our team, editor and audio designer Luke Mahoney, producers Alexa March and Sean O'Malley, and executive producers Shelby Coleman, Kyle Einhorn, and Andy Chu.